Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 173 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Inside Life at the Top, an interview with Paul Scarra. We've run a handful of interviews on the No Bullshit Leadership podcast in the past year just to give you a break from my monologues and to bring in different perspectives from the most successful executives, entrepreneurs and thought leaders. Today, Em and I are really excited to finally bring in this interview with Paul Scarra. Paul is currently the Chief Executive and Managing Director of Rail Freight Business Pacific National. And when we recorded this interview, Paul had just finished his stint as CEO of Australia's second largest airline, Virgin Australia which had undergone a tumultuous change of ownership on the back of the COVID pandemic. We'd originally intended this interview to be part of the live virtual event that we ran in February this year to celebrate the 1 million downloads milestone for the podcast. Well, as we bring you today's episode, we've just recently passed the 2 million downloads mark. For one reason or another, we had to pull the interview at the last minute, but I'm pleased to say that we can run it today in its entirety. Given that it's only a couple of days before Christmas, Em and I thought it would be a nice, free-flowing discussion for you to sink into as you reminisce about the year that was. Paul and I cover why the airline industry is so tough, yet still so attractive. We talk culture, politics, and crisis management. We talk about how to win the customer, and we even talk about one of Paul's leadership roles in an organisation that wasn't winning. So snuggle up with a nice warm glass of eggnog, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, 
or perhaps a refreshing gin and tonic if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. And enjoy this fireside chat with Paul Scarra. Paul Scarra is probably one of the most recognisable faces in Australian business at the moment as the former chief executive of Virgin Airlines. Now, the airline's collapse and rebirth in 2020 after the COVID pandemic decimated the global airline sector played out in a daily media spectacle. Now, Paul has achieved some incredible results over his career. When the chips are down, there are certain people that you want to have running your business, and Paul is one of those. Now, I had the pleasure of working with Paul for around five years at Horizon, the ASX top 50 listed rail freight business, but it's what he's done since then that's been most interesting. So welcome, Paul. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Marty. Great to be a part of your show. Thanks, mate. Um, let me start off with one of my favourite quotes. Now, Warren Buffett once said, if a far-sighted capitalist had been present at Kitty Hawk, he would have done his successors a huge favour by shooting the Wright brothers' plane down. Now, running an airline is a tough business at the best of times, but COVID made it virtually impossible. And I think mm. I said to you when you were appointed as CEO of Virgin, you were just about to enter the be careful of what you wish for phase. Um, yeah. Little did I know, right? Why are so many people attracted to the business of airlines when it's such a tough industry to be successful in? Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that is true. I mean, history shows that it's very difficult um, as an industry uh, to make money or certainly any sort of decent returns for investors in, in this industry. Um, and I guess a lot of that uh, goes to the intoxicating nature of being involved with aviation. And there is a saying that says once the av gas is in the nostrils, it's very difficult to get it out. I certainly find that true as well. Um, however, there's, there's a, a number of different tales within that story. A lot of airlines uh, for geographic reasons and economic reasons are basically a loss leader for economic uh, stimulus, economic driving of, of bringing visitors in. So Singapore, for example, uh, has become a wonderful hub in the world and a lot of that is because of their geographic location and the feed of Singapore Airlines in and out of that, that part of the world. Places like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, airlines are not seen as just an investment in their own right. They're seen as an economic driver uh, that actually works for the economy. And the history of airlines around the world has been strongly government-owned for those reasons. And then you saw this uh, metamorphosis into or out of government ownership into private ownership. And it took a long time for that industry to learn how to behave out of government ownership and how to get the sort of returns investors wanted. But you are seeing now a long way down the path in this industry that there are some very successful, profitable, uh, either privately owned or listed airlines, and you can succeed. But I think part of the reason why it's such a, an industry that attracts so many people and particularly here in Australia, we're a big island nation. Uh, aviation is almost an essential service to keep us connected. But in this country, it's always been uh, associated with positivity around holidaying to, you know, wonderful experiences. And it does attract people that want to be a part of that. And there is still this, you know, high-profile sexy nature about working in that industry that I think prevails right to today, we even see the passion and the positivity through the biggest crisis ever still coming to the fore and showing why people love being in this sector. It's still going to struggle uh, as COVID and the vaccine, you know, takes its time to, to arrive. Um, but I think it'll, it'll learn a lot through this process and it will be a more profitable sector as a result of it in the future. Yeah, right, mate. That is that is the best explanation I've ever heard of the uh, economic dynamics of the industry. You haven't quite tempted me to go out and run an airline, but I think that was an awesome explanation. So thanks for that. No um, worries, mate, I think you were the first leader who I remember articulating the mantra of respect before popularity so succinctly and clearly. Um, and of course, I chose this as the very first episode I let out with in the uh, No Bullshit Leadership podcast. Interesting, what comes through most strongly from uh, the people who know you is that they absolutely love working for you. Uh, and I did at the time too. So what is it about your leadership style that enables you to demand a superior level of performance and to expect people to meet a really high standard, but at the same time to endear yourself to them and exact such uh, loyalty and admiration? Yeah, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, Marty. Uh, look, I think in my leadership roles, I've never set out with the goal to be popular in the role. Uh, but I do want to establish a high level of respect because I think that that creates that environment where people 
want to follow you. You don't have to push them. So uh, their own effort is helping you move along, not your, you're not behind them pushing them against their will. So I think um, it all comes down to a number of things. So popularity is a byproduct of, I think, of being respected. Uh, but, and it's different in different companies. You know, an airline CEO, you are the public face. Uh, you are far more high profile than, than some other CEO roles. So it is, it is a little more important, I think, there to actually focus on the outcome of popularity, but not the main reason. The thing I think about it is, is the CEO who is respected and hence pop, um, possibly popular is really around selling the story painting the picture, you know, one of the key things of a CEO is to be really clear on what the definition of success looks like and not just what it looks like but why it's important to do it and how we go about it. And those things, I think, can only be properly painted with the engagement of your people, the involvement of their input. Uh, it's not really effective to say, here's the, what, the world according to Paul, here's the tablet from above, suck it up and do what I tell you to do. Now, I have an idea every time I start as a CEO what journey I want to take it on, what outcome I want to get, but it's far more effective to involve your people, to give them a say, and there's a far greater chance that they'll own it at the other end. And if their language is coming back out in your vision, the, the, the priorities of the company, the pillars you want to establish your success on and the behaviour you want to engender and drive in that organisation, then they're far more likely to grasp it when they think they've had an input into it. Now, because of that, that process, I think, actually does build respect. And a, a huge part of that is once you do that is then to engage very frequently, regularly and in a genuine way. And so I hear a lot of people say culture change can take a long time. I actually believe that with the right CEO and the right focus, and what you pay attention to, you can start driving culture change fairly quickly. But what you have to do is make sure that the promises you make, the posters on the wall, is you are the living, breathing example of it, that there's zero compromise around me saying, look, for example, one of the jobs I banned swearing. Now, if I ever swore, the whole thing comes undone. So I have to be the living, breathing example. Now, that's an interesting another phrase you've heard me say before. People say, I want to lead by example. Sadly, every leader does. Every leader does, including the bad one. And so you're setting the behavioural standard within your organisation. And if you're a yell and scream, fear-based leader that, you know, tries to push people against their will and creates a culture of fear, uh, one where you can't be challenged, then people who want to aspire or who aspire to go up the chain think that's the behaviour that will get them there. So it has to be leading by the right example and being the person who lives and breathes that and that builds respect and back to your first point may actually create a popular leader. Yeah, right. Um, and that's, yeah, that's ab absolutely my experience of uh, what it was like working in proximity with you, which is great. Although I've got to say the swearing thing, I, I don't know. Do you tell your people to go and listen to no mm, leadership from Marty Moore? <laughs> Well, there is an exclamation mark where the eye would normally go. <laughs> okay. so, you know, it's, uh, it gets through all the spell checks. Um, yeah, it does. It does. It gets, you know, it gets through the server firewalls. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, uh, look, it was a very specific thing to do for a very specific reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and it was very successful. And we may get to talk about it a bit more later on. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely, for sure. So, so look, um, you've led uh, a number of organisations through, you know, serious crisis periods. Uh, Virgin Australia was one of those, obviously a very tough gig, as we've mentioned. And um, I know you came out the back of that physically and emotionally exhausted. Um, the other example, of course, was uh, Queensland Rail through the 2011 floods, uh, which damaged infrastructure and was, um, was a very serious recovery process. I was in a different organisation doing the same thing at the time. Um, but when you take a company that goes through that significant a crisis that can, in some cases, be a near-death experience, what did you find the toughest part of leading through that as people are so uh, uncertain and fearful of what might happen in the future? Yeah, I think uh, these experiences of leading companies through a time of crisis, uh, the experience stays with you really uh, strongly for your whole career. And I went through the collapse of ANSET back in 2001, just off the back of 9 and there's things that I can remember like it happened yesterday that were really 
a struggle for me. I wasn't the leader of the company through that point, but I know what I wanted and I know what I did and did not get. And those experiences took me forward through to when we managed to the flood event in Queensland in 2011 and then when we went in and out of administration at Virgin. So first and foremost, as I mentioned earlier to you, the CEO's role is to define what success looks like, tell that story in a simple possible manner as you can and get people to follow you and be on, you know, basically in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And defining success in uh, the crisis time is really about resetting it, resetting what it is and bringing in the time horizon quite rapidly. So you shorten it and you, because you don't have the luxury of looking years out, you only have, you know, a day, a week, a month at a time to, to get to. So you redefine what success looks like and you then communicate that as much as you possibly can. And I think in a crisis, there's a couple of things. First of all, you have to keep the troops calm. Uh, you have to be, you always have to be honest as a CEO, but as you well know, in listed world, there are restrictions on what you can and can't say. Yeah. So you have to be a little bit guarded about that and balanced. So being as honest as you possibly can in the circumstances, as frequently as you possibly can, but having uh, clarifying what it is we're working together to achieve and what success looks like is incredibly important. Remaining calm, I mean, people don't want to see a CEO that crumbles under pressure or is less than calm or panicked through this process because it will just permeate all the way through the organisation. So the CEO's job is pretty stressful at the best of times, but the most important job through a crisis is to, to navigate through to a point of success, be clear about what that is, remain really calm. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I was feeling the pressure and the stress, but I didn't want my people to see that because they need a calm leader who they can trust. Um, and then uh, making sure that you communicate really frequently, even when you've got nothing to say. Yeah. And so we knew in a number of those circumstances that there were going to be things that people weren't happy with in the outcome, whether that meant that there was a change of direction in their job beyond the crisis, whether they even had a job, and you just have to be upfront about that and explain the why. Why are we here? Why do we need to make these decisions? How are we going to minimise the impact? Uh, how are we going to make sure you feel as if you're treated with respect uh, throughout this entire process? And those things matter a lot. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and you did mention the fact that there were days when you struggled, um, remaining calm under that you know, level of sustained pressure. What was your go-to technique for remaining calm and, and showing that grace under pressure that kept all your people on the level when every day brought a new twist or challenge? Yeah, one really simple technique was just making sure that you truly put time and effort into prioritising what needs your time and attention and how urgent. You know, everyone's done the, the quadrant of urgent and important. Uh, the only things I would focus on were the ones in the top corner of urgent and important. If it was urgent and not important, then that's just got no focus. Yeah. If it was important but not urgent, it got no focus. So it really uh, got down to, you know, I think two to four issues per day that got my full undivided attention to make sure that um, I wasn't getting cluttered in my mind, I wasn't getting distracted by trivial things, uh, that I knew that the single most important thing for my people to hear from me today is this one or two topics um, or, you know, maybe something's about to break in the media and we had real-time communication where I could jump on and say, this is what's really going on and you're about to read this story in the press, but here's the true story. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, communication is just all important, isn't it? Um, mm. And uh, I'm really glad you mentioned the urgent versus important. That's a really good way to sort things out in your head. Uh, but most interestingly, the fact that anything in life can be put on a two-by-two two matrix. Uh, I know you've been to Harvard Business School and you've also worked yeah. with a lot of McKinsey partners. Um, which gave you that? Was it McKinsey or Harvard? Well, it's hard to remember which one. Uh, <laughs> by nature. Uh, and, and look, I think it, I've always simplified things for my own benefit because it's got to be um, sellable in a very simplistic nature. And for me to tell a story, I simplify it for myself. But it works really effectively for uh, the subjects that you're communicating to, be it external customers, your own people, your board and stakeholders. Um, I can't remember, but I think both uh, experiences working with a number of different consulting companies and going to Harvard Business School says, you know, it, it, it is important for it to look pretty simple. 
Yeah. Uh, and you need to be able to explain it to the newest employee in a way that they can get it pretty quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, let's shift back to our time at Horizon together. Now, we worked on some yeah. pretty big customer contracts uh, in sales and commercial and marketing. Um, and um, when we worked on some of these things, one of the big contracts we worked on, we were absolutely um, picked to not win. Uh, and the media was running a big campaign about it because it was such a massive contract in the scheme of us and our major duopoly competitor. Yet we won that contract 100% of the, of the deal that came through. We had a pretty large team working on that. Um, I don't know how many people. There probably would have been maybe 40 or 50 people working in a pretty dedicated fashion on that deal. Uh, and that was for over a year, right? It was a very long cycle. So what do you put that success down to in that particular deal? Yeah, well, I think um, at, at the core of success as a leadership team or as a leader, it's surrounding yourself with great people that can make you look good. So um, you were one of those, Marty, and I uh, I had a luxury. <laughs> I wasn't fishing, mate. Sorry, sorry. No, I know you weren't. But, um, you know, a lot of those outcomes allowed me to take uh, take all the credit for your great work. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, uh, no, in all seriousness, we worked really beautifully as a team through that process. But um, it was a huge challenge, as you well know. Uh, for those who won't know it, you know, we had um, about 60% of our entire contracted revenue base come up for tender in one year. And you're quite right, we were on the nose with a number of those customers. And so um, how did we take the clock forward and then realise that we were in a position to win them all. Well, that, that was really about truly understanding from the customer what it is they wanted moving forward, um, what issues they currently had, and then actually going about fixing them. Uh, and as you well know, we spent a lot of, we upped the engagement massively mm. with the key decision makers and we framed the, the questions around um, we know we're on the nose right now, but if just dream with us for a minute, if you wanted to sit here in nine months' time when you make this decision and you were saying to us, guys, I don't know how you did it, but you did it, we're just about to reaward you everything, what would have to happen? Um, and as you well know, we documented 27 different things and used that period to go back and tick them off and say, you said this and we've done that, you said this and we've done that. And we never refused to believe that we were going, sorry, we refused to believe that we're going to lose it, but we never lost the belief that we could actually turn it around. And as you well know, um, there, was a, there was some blurred accountability in those processes and we worked really hard to get, get that ambiguity out of it so that we could take control, and we did. And we would continually go back and re repeat the words to the client, you said if we do this, uh, we've done it. You said if we do this, we've done it. And so we helped build that journey. And you well remember, we actually got to the point of saying, we'll even help you write the memo to your board that says, why are we doing this? Yes. And so it came down to that final thing um, about truly understanding what they wanted and delivering, um, convincing them that it wasn't just about the tendering period that we were behaving and locking in that, that performance and behaviour for the long-term contract. And we said, rather than split us across us and our competitor, make the contract the competition and will compete with our own standards in the, in the contract. And that helped a hell of a lot, as you well know. But I think one of the things you did great uh, in that process is truly understanding what we're really up against as well. There's always this belief that if you're in trouble, you should discount. Uh, now, we knew what it would cost for our competitor to set up with new equipment, so that gave us confidence that we could actually increase the returns yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was, that was the story there. And I think teamwork um, in that process, uh, as I was saying before, we actually broke down the stepping stones to the longer-term success story and were able to achieve it and celebrate milestones as we went along and the team came on a journey. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good really good summary and recollection of it. And uh, I should probably also at this stage give a shout-out to three people, uh, Andrew McDonald, uh, Mick Cronin and Seth Rogers, who I'd consider to be MVPs in that process. So high-impact totally. uh, yeah. high guys uh, that were just a pleasure to work with. Um, yeah. Now, look, one of the things that I've um, learned about you is that despite your strength in leadership, you also have a very, very strong and sharp underlying intellect. Uh, and I've seen your genius in being able to construct commercial deals uh, at a conceptual level that provide a winning foundation for a sales and marketing team. Now, when you think about your career success over the past couple of decades, how much of it would you attribute to your intellect and experience? 
and how much of it to your leadership skills? And if there's anything else you want to throw in the tribute, that's fine. But I think that a lot of leaders are successful because of their intellect and capability and experience, not so much leadership. You have both. It's a matter of debate, I guess, uh, <laughs> about the level of my intellect. But I think what I have learned, because I've actually gone into senior leadership roles without what would normally be considered the, the practical, technical depth uh, in what I know and what I've done. So in the early days, I learned that how, did I, how do I differentiate myself? And that was about bringing leadership skills to the table. And I think, and you've seen it as well, I've moved from different industry to different industry. And in the early days of doing that, I often get that, oh, but Paul, you're not from here. You don't understand. We're different. And what I've learned is that they're far more similar than they are different. And, you know, the principles of running big companies, big capital-intensive businesses with lots of people are pretty similar across all of them. And uh, you might well recall the uh, when we first joined the railway business together, you'd hear, oh, Paul, you've got to understand there's a right way, the wrong way, and the railway. And uh, so we had to break that nexus of that belief, which we did. But I think th the simple answer is that you'd never stop learning and you've got to be clear about what it is you are learning. And I said about that journey to learn what makes the best leader. A good starting point is who are the good ones and bad ones I've worked for and what is the type of boss I would like and then I can be that boss. So always learning. Never You've never perfected anything in this space. You have to adapt and move with the times and understand the changing um, generational uh, aspects of the people who work for you, so millennials and Gen Xs and Gen Zers and all those sorts of things. Uh, and curiosity is a huge success driver. Uh, so as you well know, uh, I'll go into an industry that I don't know a lot about, but I just ask a lot of curious questions. So tell me again how that works and why would we do that? And um, have you thought about this and how can we do that better? And, you know, curiosity and learning uh, is a huge factor in all of that. But that's nothing if you then don't have the trust. I mean, it's not about micromanaging the curiosity. It's about just seeking to understand the job you're asking people to do. But then trust is a massive factor. And to trust people implicitly, I think you've got to put a lot of time and effort in the way you hire and hire really good quality people who you know can do that job far better than you can if you're in that seat and you trust them to do it and get out of their way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I used to say to my executive team at CS Energy, if I actually went to compete for your job against you, I wouldn't get the job you would. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're a CFO than I could be. You're a better head of operations than I could be. But, you know, you need someone to bring it all together, right? So that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a difference, Marty, between – I love sporting analogies, and I know, you know, I, I'm, I've been involved with sport for a long time, and we're both massive NFL fans as well. Yeah. So I see uh, Tompa Bay going really well with Tom. <laughs> they are going well. <laughs> but there is a difference, I think, with leaders. Uh, some leaders think they're still the captain and they haven't morphed into the coach. And what does that mean? Well, a captain's game is where they roll their sleeves up and they run harder and yeah. they get more of the ball and they actually carry the team. When you're a CEO, you can't afford to be in the captain mindset. You have to be in the coach mindset because you have that helicopter view and you have to get the best effort out of all of them. So you can't be the one to roll your sleeves up, run the ball yourself uh, without getting exhausted. And I think, you know, the big difference between best CEOs and some that burn themselves out is the difference between the coach mindset and the captain mindset. Oh, for sure. I couldn't agree with you more, mate. Um, let's move gears a little bit. I want to talk about some of the more uh, subtle nuances of being a CEO, particularly around managing stakeholders. Now, you've uh, had some incredibly difficult shareholder registers, registers to deal with in your last couple of CEO roles, um, multiple critical stakeholders in the business with competing priorities and sometimes polarised views. Um, did you find that having uh, disagreements and stalemates at the board level between different directors freed you up to go off and do what you wanted to do or was it something you had to manage much more actively? In the early days, that was true, um, but I... I rapidly came to the conclusion that that still wasn't in the best interest of the company to have a division at board level and then for me to go down a path that wasn't fully supported or endorsed. So that really is about addressing the reasons why those conflicts might exist. And so I have seen some CEOs not get this right, but I think the starting premise 
collectively and individually around your board and shareholders is one of respect. You know, you might not agree with their views, you might not agree with the way they want to go about things, but they are your owner uh, yep. or owners. And that gives them the right to have a certain view and a certain perspective. And so the trick to me is making sure that, um, and, and the laws are fairly similar around the world, but here in Australia, any director on your board seat is required by law to act in the best interest of the company that they're sitting on the board of, not the shareholder they think they're representing. Yes. And so a good way to bring unity into the boardroom is to continually remind them of that if they need it. They don't all need that. You know, there's, there's the occasion where they will get it clearly. But while we're sitting around that board table, the starting premise is you're here in the best interest of this company. And sometimes that might not align with the best interest of you as a shareholder because it's, you know, it might be better for you, but it might actually impact the company negatively if you do it that way. Now, that's not always the case. And quite often, my experience is that they've been aligned. Um, so, look, it's not perfect, but I, I do, uh, because of that respect and because of acknowledging their role, you do then realise you've got to put a fair bit of time into them outside of the boardroom. Uh, you've got to put a fair bit of stakeholder management, understanding what it is they're seeking to achieve and helping them come on the journey about saying, well, we can possibly get similar to that, but to do it in the best interest of the company, there's a slightly different way we're going to have to do it. And by engaging outside of the boardroom and not waiting for that um, that one meeting per month or whatever it is your company does, it's a, it's a much more informed discussion and debate when it gets into the boardroom with a lot more progress having been made. Now, at the end of the day, uh, the chair's role becomes incredibly important in those circumstances because a board is a collective entity. It's not a, it's not necessarily a set up of individuals. So there is the time where on, on the rare occasion that a vote has to be done and that then becomes the board's position. And the best boards say, I've had my say, I don't necessarily agree as a director, but I endorse the decision of the board because we're a collective. And that's a good outcome. doesn't always happen. Uh, but really the key, Marty, is understanding each individual shareholder or board member's uh, own personal aspirations for the company, channeling that into a way that can be delivered in the best interest of the company. can't always be, be done that way, but then explaining if it can't, why it can't be done. And generally that has seen progress, not always. There are some stalemates, um, but I do think that you, there are some CEOs that fall into the trap of wishing their directors didn't exist or wishing some of them didn't want um, certain things to go a certain way. And I just think you've got to respect that. And I often say to um, my, uh, all the stakeholders, and I think the simplest way to describe the centrifugal nature of a CEO, you're right in the middle and you're in the middle of simplistically three different groups, your customers, your people, and your stakeholders. And no CEO can keep any one of those individually blissfully happy all the time because to do so gets an imbalance. So I can, I say, I've got to keep those three groups of people mostly happy most of the time. Yeah. As a clear example, you know, if you're trying to give too much away in an EBA or you, you're too soft and you pay a 5% pay rise, for example, you're going to have to up your prices for your customers and lower your returns for your shareholders, and hence you've got that balance wrong. So being in the centre of that and keeping all those stakeholders mostly happy most of the time is, is the role I think CEOs need to uh, come to grips with. Yeah, that's such a good way of looking at it. Um, and if I had my time again uh, as a CEO managing a board, I think what I did, I spent way too much time in the relationship with the chairman which was a really good thing to do. And we had a very, very strong relationship with the different chairman I worked with, but not enough time with individual directors. And it did bite no. me a lot of time. So I think, I think your, um, uh, your philosophy around making sure that each of the individual stakeholders is catered for in some way, I think is fantastic. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. Let's stick with relationships for the moment. I know that in your past, uh, when you weren't in a CEO role, You've had some reasonably solid stouches with other executives who were at the peer level to you at the time. Uh, you'll know one in particular that I have in mind. Um, as someone who I consider to have uh, an uncanny genius for navigating relationships and, uh, and influencing others, what do you think of when you look back on that time and you reflect? And what would you do differently today if you had your time over again, if anything? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and you're, you're quite right. You know, there's been a, a huge passion for the roles that I've had. And, you know, sometimes that passion does um, create a little bit of tension and conflict. In the sporting teams I was involved in growing up, the best success we had is where players held each other to account and it was accepted that you could do that. Um, but I think the, 
the, the mistakes that I've made in that space is not necessarily addressing the core reason. And the core reason for those clashes was um, blurring of accountabilities and that being an unresolved issue uh, that we should have spent more time resolving as opposed to debating. And so, um, you know, the passion to jump in and do the right thing by the, the company, uh, I'm not always right, you're not always right, uh, you know, it is something that needs to be worked through. Now, what I like to do as a CEO is bring that tension into the room and say, look, you know, um, first and foremost, everyone at the ELT table is an ELT executive um, and they're a line manager second. So the company's objectives come ahead of your line objectives. And But what we want to do is when you leave this room is take very clear and singular accountability away into your area. And so that was one thing I think in the past I would have pushed more for having now learnt what I've learnt to resolve that tension. Ongoing uh, tension between executives, ongoing, is not a great thing. Tension yep. on occasion is not a bad thing at all because it says there's passion. The trick to it all is, in my view, is making sure that you lead as a CEO by agreement. And that agreement says, listen, we're all passionate. Uh, we all want the right, uh, right outcomes for this company. But there's going to be times where it's okay to challenge each other. And if, if we stop that, then I think good people start going quiet. That's a big problem. So we're going to challenge each other. Now, let's set the rules of that challenge. Respect first for the individual and the role. Um, gratitude for the fact that they're passionate enough to challenge you and then thanking them for bringing it, but then coming to a conclusion and agreement and accepting the outcome once we've agreed it. And you do that outside of the heat of battle, I think, and say when we get into that circumstance, here's the only way we can behave. That allows me as a CEO now to hold executives to account in the way they behave in those circumstances. And when they don't, they've got no no excuse. They've got to actually to fall in line with that agreement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I see elements of that that you actually put into play at the time and others that were extremely difficult because of the politics and the culture that you were dealing with. Uh, but that's for another story, right? That's another yeah. day. Uh, in a previous role as Chief Executive of DP World, the port operator, you managed to do something uh, that I never achieved in my career, and that was to tame a militant left-wing Labor union. Now, you actually ended up having a really constructive relationship with the Maritime Union of Australia, which is a pretty tough one uh, and very powerful. So historically in Australia, uh, strike action on the waterfront uh, had been able to stop an economy. And over the years, this had been used as a leverage device uh, to uh, get ever-increasing uh, pay and conditions for those workers on the waterfront at the expense of productivity. So when you spoke about those you know, three different stakeholder groups earlier, this was a classic one where the balance was in favour of the employee for a very, very long time. So what I am going to get to a question, don't worry. So what, what strategies actually helped you to navigate this environment and uh, build the relationships inside the union movement that let you change the adversarial nature of a relationship when that uh, conflict had been in place for decades? Yeah, it wasn't an easy thing to do, as you well know. So, you know, as an island nation, we're heavily reliant on the, the gateway ports that we have for economic um, driving and economic uh, success. And it is a 95% unionised workforce. And, uh, and just for context, the head of the MUA in Australia is also the global head of the equivalent um, body that represents them all in all different parts of the world, including the longshoremen in the USA. Right. So, um, but again, to simplify it right back to a, a single word, it is about respect. So many CEOs want to think you can wish unions away. And the reality is I've never seen that happen. And so they are going to play a role and they exist for a reason. Now, maybe their, their relevance or the reason for being relevant has changed over the years because I think there's a lot of government legislation that now steps in and legislates what you need to do that you and you choose to fight for. Um, but they are still a collective voice of your workforce. So what I saw when I went in there, Marty, was um, a lack of respect both ways. Management certainly did not have the respect of the workforce and the union certainly didn't, and management didn't respect the union. And so once you realise you can't wish them away, that they are a collective voice of your people, you have to find a way to work with them uh, and work with them in a way that actually gets you your outcomes as well. So what's mutually in it for all of us? Success, economic success, growth. Uh, future jobs. So how do we work collectively to make sure we make the returns we want 
uh, that you get those outcomes as well. And a big part of all of that was I called it a prison mentality I adopted there, which was you'd go and visit any one of our sites and the supervisors and managers wouldn't leave their office out of fear. So there was, they would not walk into it. was a bit like the, the prison guards that didn't want to go into the prison. Uh, and there was their own own sort of power base within the workforce, unofficial power base that was more by the union. And for a long time, a lot of them thought they worked for the union and not for the company. Yeah. So we had, a, had to turn all that around. So um, having said all of I've said about unions, the, the reality is, is that they are my employees, not the union's employees, and there's yeah. nothing stopping a direct relationship. And so we were honest about that and say, look, we, we care about our people and we're going to communicate directly with them and we're going to say a lot of things um, that it's going to take a long time for them to believe and for a long time for us to establish our credibility. But we never wavered on that. So we would do town halls at the start of morning shift, start of afternoon shift, start of night shift. Um, I would get up on the boat uh, that they were, or ship, uh, that they were loading or unloading at two in the morning and ask questions about what was working, what wasn't working. Um, I'd spent a lot of time engaging. So they got to know me and that I was a genuine person. Um, we broke down those barriers. We proved we could work. And trust and respect uh, is very important in that. So one thing I didn't want to be seen as was soft on unions, which I'm certainly not, but I keep my word. And that builds that respect and trust. The second part about all of that is to make sure that you have standards that you stick to. And so when we talk earlier about the swearing ban, there is a phrase, at least in our country, possibly all around the world, that says swear, someone swears like a warfare. Yeah. Right? Now, that phrase exists for a reason. It's because the language around those businesses was very offensive and pretty foul. And so uh, I'm no um, drinking violet, I'm no prude, uh, but I thought it was important to make a cultural statement around saying this is no longer going to happen. And so we actually set the standard to the union and said, because often it was their weapon to say, you're on our playing field when we're dealing with you. So we said, we've got standards now. We're not having any swearing. The first time you swear, we'll ask you to stop. The second time, we're going to get up, leave the room. And after the first time we warned them on that, they never swore again in a union-based negotiating meeting. And there was this mutual respect and we got far better outcomes as a result. We got a better outcome for our shareholders. They got a fair outcome not um, a generous outcome, but a fair outcome when you compare them to essential services like police and fire, fireies and ambulance. And we think that's, that was the best outcome. Yeah, um, quite, a, quite a feat. And I suspect, though, that given the process you had to go through to shift that culture, it took a lot longer than the culture shift you made at Virgin Australia. Now, I could be wrong, but uh, when you said before, culture shift doesn't have to take a long time, um, my experience was it did take a long time in those very heavily unionised industries because you had so much to unpick. Uh, was that your experience? Yes, it is my experience, Nadi, exactly that. Uh, when you the, the stronger and more combative the union is, the more frequently you've got to communicate your own message because they're also debating. Uh, yep. So uh, at Virgin Australia, they, they were a very, very proactive bunch of unions we worked with. They understood the need to succeed financially, um, they understood the need for positive culture on the work uh, on the on the front line, and they. I mean, I was a bit surprised in the first meeting I had with them that said, "Hey, Paul, what can we do to help you succeed in this airline?" Um, with the more militant unions you work with, yeah. I'll say one thing, and I'll say he doesn't really mean that. What he really means is, how can he screw you further down and and affect your pay? So you know, it is the workforce quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So so it. In both scenarios, it's important to have real-life examples of why you're serious, but in the more militant one, you had to go out and celebrate the stories. So I would stand up in front of our people at DP World and say, look, I know you're sitting here sceptical and you won't believe me until you actually see it happen. Um, so what I'm going to do is when it does happen, I want to come back and celebrate that with you so you can actually believe that we mean what we're saying. Yeah, that's great. Um, I do want to drill down on one other thing here that you said. So you'd go out there at 2 o'clock in the morning and do a Q&A on the waterfront uh, with the workers who are on the front line. Um, no. I used to do interesting things as well. I'd turn up in a power station at 2 o'clock in the morning and talk to an electrical fitter to see what they thought about the business. Um, interestingly, though, that sort of credibility you get as a CEO by going around and listening and talking to people at all different levels is fine, but also you need to have all of those leaders in between you and them uh, in all those different layers, also believing, also doing the work and also understanding how to shift the culture. How did you find that at DP when you were clearly setting an example 
but you had a lot of people who were, uh, let's call them reluctant amateurs, having to follow you in that path. Yeah, well, it was important that they were involved as well. So it wasn't just me and they were still at home asleep, you know, so it was a little uncomfortable for some of them because for many years, <laughs> um, we changed a lot of leaders out as well, but there were yeah. many good leaders there that embraced the new environment, and but they sort of took a, took a bit of time to get out of their old habits. And so I'd say what we're going to do today is, or tonight is, we're going to turn up, we're going to do some safety interactions around the wharf. Uh, we're going to get up on the, the deck and talk to the leading hand up there about what's working and what's not. We're going to observe, you know, the circumstances with which we ask people to go out and work in and would we accept to work in them our own way. And, again, you know, there's, there's good and bad in all of that. If, if you don't actually set the scene on how to do it, the wrong leaders will go out and think they've got to go out there and start barking orders. Yeah. You know? So you could get the wrong leader that walks out there that never seen him out there and he starts going, you know, don't lift that like that. Why are you doing that? You know? <laughs> no, we're there to seek to understand before we make the decision. So turn up and say, tell me about our safety culture here. Do you feel safe? Tell me about the equipment we've asked you to work with. Tell me what you think we haven't been listening to. Tell me, you know, so it was much more a curiosity discussion as opposed to a hey, I'm out here to be a more visible version of the yelling, um, screaming boss that you haven't seen today. So that was very, very important to say, when we do this, you're coming with me and this is the way you need to engage. And then uh, we would sit down as a collective group. Um, It's a big trap to fall into to cut middle management out because sometimes they are a bit of a problem. They can be called the concrete layer. But we'd sit down as a collective group and say, what did you learn and what are you going to do about it? and involve them in it. And that was a crucial part of that success. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, that's excellent, mate. Thank you. Um, I want to finish off by uh, just changing slightly. It's easy to talk about leadership when you're winning. Um, but you've been on board of the Gold Coast Suns AFL team virtually since its inception. Uh, and for those in our international audience who aren't familiar with the quirky game of Australian rules football, uh, the Suns was an expansion team that ended the competition in Australia in 2011. Um, in the growing Australian Football League competition. And it's fair to say that they have struggled to perform in a big way. They, they are generally cellar dwellers. They occupy the last you know, four or so positions on the competition ladder over the 10 years they've been competing. So from sorry to give sorry to all the people in the Gold Coast Suns community and organisation. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, well, I hate my after this, mate. From a, <laughs> you, might, you might have your uh, extension on the board withdrawn, but no, from a leadership perspective, how do you see your role at the Suns as a director on the board? And what's different from leading a team that gets used to losing as opposed to a team that's used to winning? What do you do differently? Yeah, look, it is fair to say that we haven't had the success we hoped we would have, uh, but we have learned on the way that it's, you know, there's 17 other clubs that are passionately doing everything and trying to um, push the boundaries of what you can and can't do to be successful next year. So you can't have it all your own way. Uh, like the NFL and the NBA and a number of other sporting competitions around the world, there is the league has equalisation measures, draft salary caps. And so the intention is, is that um, every team is fairly similar. Uh, we haven't been winning, but we have learned a lot through that journey about what it does take. So no one gets used to winning. I can tell you the feeling around the club um, for the whole time that we... And we've only finished last twice in 11 years, so... Uh, but you're right, we've not made the playoffs. And that is that is a measure of, of a successful season if you make the playoffs. So, uh, but we have reset. We we changed um, a number of the directors. We got a new CEO uh, who came in with really strong credentials. He's brought with him a number of great people. We've got a really good, well-respected young coach. Um, you know, we, we recruit for uh, attitude and um, character as much as we do for ability. And uh, that's really important. Um, we set high standards, you know. So the, last year we started showing a lot on the field. We've got the youngest list in the AFL, uh, but we won some pretty big games last year for us. We've got probably the best, you know, five of the best young 10 players in the whole league, and we're going to hold them together to succeed. So your point about uh, my role as a director, um, look, I think it is a director, whether it's a sporting club or whether it's a company, can be a little bit frustrating because you don't have the single executive responsibility so you do have to collectively agree on things and sometimes that's not exactly what you would have done so you have to live with that um, what I've been able to do there is particularly in a leadership sense is mentor some of the, the leaders in the club 
um, to uh, it is one of belief. I think sport is is one of belief. The new the new mantra within sport is something that would never have been mentioned ten years ago, and that is love. What how much love is in this room? How much respect have you got for each other? How, how far would you go? I know Damien Hardwick, who's just coached his third championship winning team, spent some time at Harvard, and that's the concept he came away with: uh, humility and love, and making sure that um, you know that that extra element actually helps. Uh, you go above and beyond, and that is that is very important. Um, a big part of that, though, is is having a very strong belief that you do what it takes, that you will get there. And sometimes the mind plays funny games on you. And you know, when people are out of form in sport, that a lot of it's about belief, not ability, as well. So a lot of that focus and a lot of driving that sort of mindset within the club is what I do. Uh, I have in the last two, sorry, three years, been the director from a football perspective as well. So I chair the football subcommittee. So I get to dabble in trading and uh, player payments and um, draft choices. Uh, who, who are we going to trade to what club? What do we get in return? Um, it's like real-life fantasy football. And I actually <laughs> uh, So that, that's been fun. And, you know, in the last few years, I'm, I've been really proud of the way the team has stuck to their strategy and know that you've got to start building, you know, five years out before you can see a premiership. Uh, and we've stuck to our guns and we think we're on the right path. Fantastic, mate. Well, all the best for the rebuilding phase. Um, Paul, that's it, mate. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and being so open uh, with our audience. Our, our community is going to get so much from this interview, I'm sure. Fantastic to talk to you. Great to see you again and uh, good luck for everything you do in the future. Oh, thanks for having me, Marty. Take care. All right. So that brings us to the end of episode 173. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with another leader who you know is going to benefit from it. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode where Em and I are going to wrap our favourite episodes from 2021. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. Listener.